Let's open in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us together. We thank you for having a relationship, a special relationship with each one of us, Lord. And Lord, we thank you that we, are, we can share that and we can know when another is, in, is having a, a difficult time that you encourage us to share the love and how you have worked in our lives and how you've pulled us through difficult times. Lord, so we ask that our hearts be open to hear your message today so that we can all come a little bit closer to you. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, Frank will be bringing us our message today. Thank you, Frank. Thank you. And uh, it's good to see all of you this morning. All right, let's worship our Lord. I'm going to let you in on a truth. It might not be a secret, but Christ is coming again. Looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. One of the best ways to get rid of discouragement is to remember that Christ is coming again. When it is happening in your life right now is not going to last forever. The most thrilling, glorious truth in all the world is the second coming of Jesus Christ. When we look about today and see pessimism on every side and pandemic, uh, we should remember that the Bible is the only book that is a reliable prediction of the future. The Bible is more modern than tomorrow's news report. It says the consummation of all things shall be the coming again of Jesus Christ to the earth. It gives us hope that we should all be sober and that make us more diligent in what we do. After all, we do not know when Christ will return. Jesus himself said, of the day and the hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, but my Father only. Believing in the return of Jesus doesn't make us less concerned about this world. It makes us more concerned because we know the time may be short. Now is the time to live for Christ and witness for him. The hope for today, believers happily anticipate Christ's return because it signals the end of our earthly struggles. Knowing that he could return at any time should all also instill in us an urgency to share the gospel with those around us. Who in your life needs to hear the good news of the cross today?
for God to change our heart that we that we kind of ran before the music <laughs> our Old Testament scripture today comes from Psalms 145 verses 1 through 8 I will exalt you my God and my King and praise your name forever and ever I will praise you every day. Yes, I will praise you forever. Great is the Lord. He is most worthy of praise. No one can measure his greatness. Let each generation tell its children of your mighty acts. Let them proclaim your power. I will meditate on your majestic, glorious Splendor in your wonderful miracles, your awe-inspiring deeds will be on every tongue. I will proclaim your greatness. Everyone will share the story of your wonderful goodness. They will sing with joy about your righteousness. The Lord is merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. Say our Lord's Prayer together. Think of the words as you say them. 
Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Testament reading today comes from Paul's letter to the Philippians. Chapter 1, verses 20 through 30. For I fully expect and hope that I will never be ashamed, but that I will continue to be bold for Christ, as I have been in the past. And I trust that my life will bring honor to Christ, whether I live or die. For to me, living means living for Christ, and dying is even better. But if I live, I can do more fruitful work for Christ. So I really don't know which is better. I'm torn between two desires. I long to go and be with Christ, which would be far better for me. But for your sakes, it is better that I continue to live. Knowing this, I'm convinced that I will remain alive so I can continue to help all of you grow and experience the joy of your faith. And when I come to you again, you will have even more reason to take pride in Christ Jesus because of what he's doing through me. Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourself in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Then whether I come and see you again or only hear about you, I will know that you are standing together with one spirit and one purpose, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. Don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies. This will be a sign to them that they are going to be destroyed, but that you are going to be saved, even by God himself. For you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. We are in this struggle together. You have seen my struggle in the past, and you know that I am still in the midst of it. We 
we have a responsive reading. Either use your bulletin or the board. Hope beyond all human hope. You promised descendants as numerous as a star to old Abraham and barren Sarah. You promised light and salvation in the midst of darkness and despair and promise redemption to a world that will not listen. Gather us to yourself in tenderness. Open your ears to listen to your word and teach us to live faithfully as people confident of the fulfillment of your promise. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we know that all that we have really belongs to you and that you have entrusted us. You have given us things that really belong to you and that you, you want us to learn to use them the way that you would use them. So Lord, give us that wisdom. Allow us to, to give back and give back the way that you would want us to. Lord, and we ask you to bless the gifts that we give, to further your kingdom and help others come to know you. This we ask in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we're going to uh, be covering Colossians 3.12 today, and we're actually going to just cover two words, So, which is actually better because next week we're going to cover one word. <laughs> so, so we're going to double it this week. This is uh, this is this is your banner week. This is <laughs> so. <clears throat> let me read the text. Colossians three twelve, and I'll I'll read twelve through fourteen, just to give you the context. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other, and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Now these verses are, um, they're a call to uh, godly living and Christian character. And God, uh, God has called us to resemble him in our relationships with each other. The problem is our culture is moving away from godly character toward uh, what one commentator this week said, neo-paganism. We're, we're, we're really heading toward being a pagan nation. So I'd like to back up a bit and talk about why then are we talking about character and the need for character. Um, and I want to go back to Romans chapter 1. The trend, the problem with the trend that we see in America today is that those who are rioting and killing and lying and stealing and hating and creating division are violating both the nature and the character of God and their own character, and their own conscience. And so we're going to look at then the kind of this basis of where our culture is, and then we'll move into what's our response as Christians. So Romans chapter 1. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men, and, and then here's this the phrase I want to really concentrate on, who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since they, what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now this word, uh, suppress, in the Greek, could be translated uh, suppress or hold down or keep down. Um, and what it's saying is that the truth about God is, is evident. You know, you look out at the, uh, at the mountains, you look you know, at human beings, you just look all around you. If your eyes are open, you can't help but come to the conclusion that there is a God. Um, I think I mentioned this in here before, but, uh, you know, you just look at the DNA, you know, DNA strand and, and the RNA, and 
Uh, it's just unbelievable, the intelligence and the design and the wonder that we see all throughout creation. And so we as Christians, we say, well, why can't people see that? Why, you know, why is that such a mystery? But this says in verse 18 that the problem is it's not an intellectual problem. It's, a, it's an emotional problem. It's a, it's a thing in their inner being that people suppress the truth by their wickedness. They actually, you know, emotionally can't handle the idea that there is a God because if there is a God, then they are accountable to God. And that's really where our, where our culture is heading. You know, and so what happens is that people uh, in that quest then try to run as hard as they can and fill life with all kinds of hedonism and all kinds of stuff in order to suppress the knowledge of God. And it says in this verse that as a direct result of their suppression of truth, it says their thinking is futile, their foolish hearts are darkened, they have a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. Um, that's where our culture is today. It's, it's futile thinking, foolish hearts darkened, and it having a depraved mind. And so it's no wonder we look out and, you know, and we, we look at the news and we see what's going on. Um, God has made it clear um, that he has turned them over to those things because they have, they have suppressed the knowledge of God. They become fools. They deny the existence of God, who is the embodiment of righteousness and the source of power, to be able to overcome our sinful nature. So what we're seeing in America is the result of decades of teaching in the media and the secular schools that which is taught openly and purposefully that there is no God. And if there is no God, then we've got to account for creation, we've got to account for uh, people's feelings, we've got to, you know, when, when men's conscience flare up and they, they begin to question, um, you know, <coughs> whether they're right with God, uh, they, 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 they suppress that and they push it down. Because they don't want, the last thing they want is to admit that there is a God because they, they will stand naked before God, knowing that, <clears throat> that they are under the judgment of God. And, as it, and this verse goes on, these verses in um, Romans 1, and it says, as a result, God hands them over to the sinful desires of their heart, to sexual impurity, to shameful lust, to homosexuality and perversion. Don't we see that today? Just um, a... a an avalanche of sexual impurity. R.C. Sproul says, as I mentioned before, that we are devolving as a nation into neo-paganism, where there's no restraint on doing whatever we feel like doing. Um, you're, you know, your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth, I'm going to do what I want, you can do what you want, and it's okay. I'm not going to judge you, you don't judge me, and we'll just move along with life. The problem is that we all stand guilty before God. And it says they've been filled with every kind of wickedness, evil. And this is, comes out of Romans uh, 1. Greed and depravity, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossip, slanderous, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Does that sound like our culture today? Uh, where we just see uh, people devolving, they morali morally devolving into, really into, into pagans. In other words, they're governed by their own sinful nature and not the Spirit of the Lord. That's the problem. That's the basic problem. So not only are they ungodly in their motives and behavior, <clears throat> but civil society itself becomes impossible. And we keep hearing the, you know, on the news, um, you know, where is civility gone? Uh, well, th this explains it. Men have forgotten God. When each man does what is right in their own eyes, as we see in the book of Judges, society itself begins to unravel. That's the problem. And that's exactly what's being lived out before our eyes right now. Right is determined by the poles and by force. There are no shared or biblical values. 
So when we are governed by our sinful nature, it destroys both ourselves and those around us. Our problem as believers is, you know, we can get our hearts right with God, and we can, you know, we can have this incredible relationship with God and the joy of the Lord and all that kind of stuff, but we are, we are still part of this culture, and we constantly are bumping up against sin, aren't we? And it's the sin many times, it's, you know, certainly it's our, our own sin sometimes, but many times it's the sin of others. That's, that's what we're facing. Our grandchildren and our children and our friends and our, our, our spouses and so on, we're bumping up against sin and the effects of sin in other people's lives. Uh, and then verse 32 in Romans says, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, not only, do they, not only they, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. So what we do is, what happens is, that people you know, do these kinds of things, live this kind of life, and then gather people you know, around them who agree with them. Isn't that always what happens? You get involved in some kind of sin, and so you gather around you people to tell you it's okay. It's all right if you do that. So not only do they do what their conscience says is wrong, they also gather around them those who approve of those kinds of practices and who lend support to their distorted and perverted concepts of right and wrong. Dostoevsky said this, if there is no God, then all things are permissible. Let me read that again. If there is no God, then all things are permissible. Anything goes. If there is no God, if there is no final judgment, if there is no accountability at the end of, you know, the end of everything that there is, if all of that is taken away, then, you know, honestly, why not live? Just get what you can get while you're here. Vanity of vanity, says the preachers. All things are meaningless. Life is meaningless. And certainly it's meaningless to try to be a good person. The problem is that my preferences don't always agree with your preferences. And the way is open to anarchy and eventually the law of the jungle, might over right. And that's what we're seeing. Uh, that's really what the rioting is all about, is that we, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a power struggle. It's my way. So at stake in America is Western civilization as we know it. And the answer is not politics, it is God. God's both the model of what we're to be like, but he also gives us the power to get there. And only the church can make the difference. It's on, it's on you, it's on me. Uh, because people are not going to, they're not going to be able to live in society unless they know God. And unless they know Jesus Christ. Because if you know God, if you have a knowledge of God, then you also have to have a knowledge that Jesus Christ forgives your sins. I mean, what... What, what, as far as we've gotten so far in Romans is we've gotten to the place <clears throat> where we're saying, okay, you're a sinner before God. You're guilty before God. Well, if you don't have Jesus Christ, then you're stuck. I mean, you're, 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 you're guilty. And you've got to do something with all those guilty feelings, with all those things in your conscience. So what we're talking about this morning then and this is where we finally get to our text, is that we are talking about the contrast between the old self and the new self. Okay? The old self is, is, is that which takes us down that, that downward spiral <clears throat> toward anarchy, toward neo-paganism and so on. But it's only the Spirit of God that can help us to begin to rise above that. And there's a great contrast between the old self and the new self. Colossians 3.3 3 says, For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Verse 5, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Verse 8, 
now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, and so on and so forth. Okay? So the solution, as we see in Scripture then, in Colossians here, is that we put to death those deeds of the sinful nature and we follow after or we, or, or we allow God to build this new self in us and that's the only solution that we have. <coughs> Verse 10, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Verse 12 then, therefore as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. In other words, the only way that we are going to have the kind of character that God wants us to have and that we want to have is if we put on the new self. We put on Christ. We clothe ourselves with Christ. We, we are filled with God's Holy Spirit. We're not going to be able to do it otherwise. Self-effort isn't going to do it. We've talked about that in the past. You can't do it by yourself. You cannot be a better person. You can try and try and try, but you're going to get frustrated with it until you come to the, the foot of the cross and realize that only Jesus can give us a new nature. Only Jesus can give you that nature that's renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator. Galatians 5, 16, <coughs> 17 says, So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. We cannot, out of strong effort or willpower or desire, um, deal with our own sinful nature. It takes the Spirit, living by the Spirit, to, not to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. So on one side is the sinful nature, on the other side is Christ and the Spirit of God, and, there's, and we can go one direction or the other. We can't simultaneously go both ways. We have no power outside of Christ over our sinful nature. The sinful nature destroys the fruit of the Spirit builds. The sinful nature divides people. The fruit of the Spirit draws people together. Sin brings death. The Spirit brings life. It's that simple. So let's go back to our text. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. So how are we then to clothe ourselves with the fruit of the Spirit? Well, first of all, it says right here, as God's chosen people. The first step is that we realize that we are chosen by God. You realize that this morning? That, you, you know, I, I mean, I, I find myself saying this all the time. You know, people ask you for your testimony, and yeah, and then I, and then I choose to follow Jesus Christ. Well, not really. Christ chose me in the first place. He, he tapped me on the shoulder, and then I turned around. <laughs> That's really all that happened. It, we, you were chosen by God. He looked at you, and he's, and I don't, you know, I, I mean, I look at myself, and I go, I don't know why you did that, but you did, <laughs> and I thank you for it. God chose you personally, individually. He chose you. 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You've been chosen by God. You're members of his own family. And because you're members of God's family, you have this incredible inheritance. And someday we're going to gather in that inheritance and, and we're going to reign with Jesus Christ forever. Second thing is that we're holy. It says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Now, holiness is that quality of persons or things that can be brought near or into God's presence. In the Old Testament, you remember, whenever there was uh, the high priest or one of the priests would go into the presence of God, they, he had to go through a whole ritual of sacrifice of animals and and a certain period of time of being set apart and so on, in order to enter into God's presence. 
We are holy because Christ paid the cost so that you can go boldly into the throne of grace. Holiness also means things set apart for God's purpose, dedicated, sacred, holy. So you not only can you enter into God's presence, but you are set apart for God's service. He has tapped you on the shoulder and he said, you're mine, I'm going to use you in the work of the gospel. And third, we are dearly loved. The verb is a perfect passive participle. It means we have been loved, the results of which are still continuing. So while our country burns, we quietly and purposely bless other people, showing them what God is really like. Sometimes it doesn't seem so glamorous, you know, <laughs> that, we're, that we're, uh, you know, we're called to this really a humble ministry of just simply displaying the character of God to a dying, and, uh, dying culture that's spiraling out of control. Many are sowing hatred, we sow God's love. Many sow fear, we sow courage. Many sow the acts of the sinful nature, but because we have God's Spirit dwelling within us, we're led by God's Spirit to bless them. That's our commission. Go out there and demonstrate what Christ is like, so when they look at your life, they say, ah, that's Jesus. Only Jesus can do that. I can't do that, but Jesus can do it in me. So let's look then at our text again, which is Colossians 3.12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves, and then we're going to do these two words, compassion and kindness. Humility, gentleness, and patience. So what is compassion? The word in the Greek is, is actually two words, and it means, it means a, a deep desire that goes deep, deep down within, within our hearts. Um, and actually, the word comes from the Hebrew, and it's, it defines those, um, those in, inward parts of who we are. The heart, the lungs, the liver, the spleen, the kidneys, that interior stuff within us that we are to have the, feel compassion deep, deep down inside of who we are. That's what compassion means. Webster's Dictionary defines compassion as a feeling of deep sympathy and sorrow for someone struck by misfortune, accompanied by a desire to alleviate suffering. Okay, now notice, there's two parts to this. There's a deep feeling that we have for other people's misfortune, and then we turn around, and, there, and it, it involves alleviating, taking steps, doing something active, so it's, it's not just a feeling, it's an active thing that we do. You know, Bonnie, I, I was just, I was impressed by, you know, what happened with you and your neighbor. Uh, Bonnie, there was something, something within her, deep down inside of her, in her kidney probably. <laughs> You're going to have to tell us which organ was affected. But anyway, deep down inside of her was this feeling she went over to see her neighbor. But she didn't just see her neighbor and say, oh, you know, I really feel bad for you. <laughs> that, that, you're, that you're having, you know, you're having a heart attack or, <laughs> you know, I really feel bad. I mean, a stroke, I guess it was, wasn't it? Yeah. I'm so, I'm so sorry you have a stroke. No, she did something about it. That's compassion. So God's character is compassionate and God's character is kind. Let's go to the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's probably one of the best illustrations of what compassion is all about. And it says, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. So this expert in the law came to Jesus and said, um, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, um, and, and Jesus said, asked him, what's written in the law? Well, the expert in the law Got it. He nailed it. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, he just nailed it, exactly what Jesus had said. Now, maybe he had, you know, been in different teachings of Jesus. We don't know how he got that, but 
Uh, but both of those come right out of the Old Testament. So he's summarizing all of the Old Testament. And Jesus says, yeah, you did it. You nailed it. You answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. But the man wanted to justify himself, it says. And so he said, who's my neighbor? And then Jesus responds to that question with this story of the, of the Good Samaritan. And he said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, Jerusalem is up at about 2,500 feet, sea level. Jericho is almost 1,000 feet below sea level. And it's about, it's a distance of 25 kilometers, about 15 miles. So it's a pretty, pretty lengthy, you know, path that went down from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And, and it was also known as a place where there were lots of robbers. They were, you know, stay away from those areas. Well, a man was going down. We don't know who the man was. We don't know, you know, it doesn't give a description of the man, whether he was a Jew, whether, you know, we just don't know. We don't know who he was. Well, he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. So along comes a priest. We don't know whether he's coming from Jerusalem down to Jericho or whether he was going from Jericho up to Jerusalem. I'm guessing he is coming from Jerusalem. He's just fulfilled his priestly duties probably lived down in Jericho. So he's walking along, and he sees this man, and he says, you know, I don't, I, I, I'm going to be ceremonial unclean. I'm not going to touch this guy. So he walks by. A Levite comes along. Levite does the same thing. But then it says, a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, and then here's this phrase, he took pity on him. That's compassion. He took pity on him. Something within him said, wow, this guy's in danger. I don't care if, you know, he's a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. Uh, they're hated by each other. I don't care who he is. Uh, he's, he's moved in his heart by compassion. And not only was he moved in his heart, it says he went to him, bandaged his wound, poured on oil and wine, put the man on his donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. Now, as a Samaritan, he could be in danger going into a Jewish city. <clears throat> he, then he, um, the next day, he took out two silver coins, gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor, the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Well, the man's caught. <laughs> he's, he's caught in his own question. He says, yeah, it's, it's you know, he didn't say good, but just, it's the Samaritan. That's the one. He's the one who had mercy on him. So here, you know, Jesus deliberately uses this, this story of somebody who is despised by the Jews to make a point, and that point is go and do likewise. Have compassion. And it doesn't matter who they are, you know, uh, whether you like them, whether they're an enemy, whether they're a friend, whoever it is, when God begins to stir you and you see that opportunity, have compassion. Do something about it. A number of years ago, this was actually in 1997, the year that, um, that the uh, Wildcats won the national championship, the basketball team. And the reason I can always remember that is that I was traveling, uh, doing a, a survey trip through the Balkans, Turkey, and Central Asia. So um, I went with two other guys, and we were touring that area. Well, we came to Turkey, and we're in a pension in Turkey, and I called my wife. You know, I hadn't talked to her for, I don't know, a week and a half, something like that at that point. The whole time, all she did was talk about the Wildcats games. <laughs> Telling me about, you know, and I think it was the day after, you know, the championship, the Wildcats had won the championship. So anyway, so that gives you the time frame, okay. <laughs> but on that trip, we went to Baku, Azerbaijan, and 
we met this American couple, and I'll never forget this couple. Um, if you remember, the Azerbaijan was Azerbaijan was part of the Soviet Empire, the USSR, and I don't. I think it was in 1991. Um, I'm not sure the exact date when Azerbaijan pulled out of, as did the other Central Asian republics, pulled out of the Soviet Union. And so what happened was that there were all kinds of old people who were, had a pension, were taken care of by the USSR. When, the, when these countries pulled out, then there's a gap there. Where does that pension come from? The, 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 uh, the countries like Azerbaijan had very little money at that point because they lost all kinds of money from, from their you know, ties with the Soviet Union. So the poor, were in the, especially the old poor, were in really bad shape. Well, Baku, and I think I've got a, yeah, there's a, a uh, do the next slide as well. Oops, back one. Okay, anyway, that's okay. Um, in Baku, there were a lot of, yeah, there it is, the oil derrick. You just saw oil derricks as you went into the country, into the city, I'm sorry, in Azerbaijan. All kinds of these oil derricks. Well, there were a lot of rich oil executives. So what this couple did was they combined these two concepts, and they did a catering business to all the rich oil executives, and, and had, had a really good, they were one of the best caters in the city, and then they took the proceeds from that and fed the poor, and particularly old people. Uh, and I went with them on a number of, number of trips into these old people's houses, and it was, for many of them, it was the only meal that they would get. A lot of them were starving to death. Folks, that's compassion. Moving on to Kindness. Kindness is the power that moves us to support and heal someone who offers nothing in return. Kindness is the power to move a self-centered ego toward the weak, the ugly, the hurt, and to move that ego in itself in personal care with no expectation of return. So it's the power to move close to another person in order to bring healing. It's, the, it's not the pity that wells up in us after watching a television documentary about starving children. That's not kindness. Kindness is that we have that, that sense of compassion and we do something about it. So it's very close to compassion, the concept. And there's a story in the Old Testament that really illustrates um, this whole thing of kindness. There was a united kingdom... Saul was the first king. Oh, yeah, I, let's read this. <clears throat> Kindness is loaning someone your strength instead of reminding them of their weakness. Isn't that an incredible? I, I love that. Let me repeat it. Kindness is loaning someone your strength instead of reminding them of, your weak, of their weakness. Well, wow. yeah, I do too. There's in the Old Testament, <laughs> there are the first king of the United Monarchy. Remember, the children of Israel came out of, out of Egypt, spent 40 years in the wilderness, and then there's the whole period of the judges. And in the judges, God would, you know, the nation of Israel would fall down and, and their lives would be a mess, and then they would turn, repent, turn back to God, and God would send them a judge or a, or a ruler. And this, this pattern of up and down, up and down, and finally, the people in Israel said, we want a king. All the other nations around us have kings, we want a king. So Samuel said, okay, I'll give you a king. So he gave him Saul. Saul was a great king for, you know, <clears throat> for a while. It says he was a head taller than anybody else, handsome as could be. And you know, he, was, he was quite a good king for a while. And then he began to drift away. And part of what happened was that David became more popular than Saul did. And so Saul began to be jealous of David. So he, um, so he started to pursue after David in order to kill him and spends, you know, a long time. 
drifting through the wilderness trying to find David, David to kill him. Well, in the meantime, David had been a member of Saul's household, and he and Jonathan, Saul's son, got to be very close. They were really close friends. Well, after Saul um, was killed and Jonathan was killed, David called his, one of his um, uh, leaders and said, Ziba, and he said, is there someone I can show kindness to from the household of Saul? And Ziba said, there's still a son of Jonathan, he's lame in both feet. Okay, so, you know, talk about somebody who's not, you know, I mean, this guy's lame, he's not going to do you, and ever do you any good. Where is he, the king asked. Ziba said, he's at the house of Machir, son of Amiel in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. When Meshibetheth, son of David, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Meshibetheth, Meshibosheth. <laughs> Try to say that real fast, so a whole bunch says. At your service, he replied, don't be afraid, David said, I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. Now here is a, a young man, lame in both feet, who deserves nothing. In fact, he's scared to death that, you know, David's going to do something to harm him. And then he says this, David says this, I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. That's kindness. And so he gave him, he restored all the lands. There must have been a lot of land that Saul owned. David didn't have to do that. Nobody was forcing him to do it. Out of the kindness of his heart, he, he showed this Mephibosheth, I'm going to restore all those lands. Again, when we went to Turkey, and actually it was the same trip that we went on, we ran across a couple named Ken and Norita Erickson. And I think I've got, yeah, there's a, there's a, a slide of Norita. And what they did, they lived in Ankara, and they would, they, they noticed, they looked out over Turkey, and all throughout Turkey, and this is true in, in much of the Muslim world, to have a crippled son or a crippled daughter is a shame. Um, and so what you need to do then as, as, you know, as parents is to hide your, your disabled son or daughter. And so many of them were just kept indoors, wouldn't be allowed out or anything, because it was a shame on the family. So they, you know, after being in Turkey for a while, said, we need to do something about this. And they started a wheelchair manufacturing plant and started giving wheelchairs to disabled children all over Turkey. And I don't know, I, you know, I don't, to this date, uh, Norita is set up on that slide, um, died in, what was it, 19, 2014. Um, I remember when she died. And, um, but they have continued to bless these disabled children all over Turkey. That's kindness. Well, the Bible tells us to be kind and compassionate. Uh, Ephesians 4.32, be kind and compassionate to one another. 1 Peter 3.8, be compassionate and humble. And so we are, exalt, we are exhorted as believers to be kind and compassionate, to have deep feelings toward each other, particularly toward the household of faith, but outside of the household of faith. One of the ways that we impact our culture is that we go out and we help people <clears throat> like Bonnie did. And we do that because when we have compassion on others, it reflects the character of God. He is our comforter. He's stirred by our plight and wants us to turn to him in times of sorrow and suffering. And he wants his body, the Christian church, to be the agent of his healing, comfort, compassion, kindness, and protection. He wants us to show others Christ's nature by weeping with those who weep. Because that's what he's like. And I love there's, there's a, there's a, a, a passage here in Luke. It says, but love your enemies. 
Okay, that's hard to start with. <laughs> Do good to them. To lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. And then listen to this phrase. <coughs> because he, that is God, is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. I mean, think of that. We have a God who created the whole universe set it all into motion, keeps it in motion, and he's kind, not just tolerant of, but kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Wow. <laughs> I, I mean, that, that is some kind of God who is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Well, I want to <laughs> close up our time with an example in our own life. When we came back to... Um, Tucson, Arizona. It was in about it was in uh, 1973. We we had been on the east. We'd been up in Oregon, and we went to the east coast. We came back to Tucson, and we were um, we were going to settle. We knew God had called us back to Tucson, and so we were, you know, we had to get housing, all that kind of stuff. So my folks had an Airstream trailer, and they said. Um, we'll loan you that Airstream trailer. You can take it up to Tucson. They live down in Tubac. Uh, we brought it up to Tucson. You live in that, and then, um, and then you, can, you, you sell it for $5,000. Whatever you get over that, you can keep. We say, good, we'll do it. So, so we lived in this Airstream trailer. And we had felt that God had spoken to us about um, buying a house. So we had started, you know, while we're living up here in Tucson, we're on Swan, well, Swan and uh, Pima. And while we were here, we started looking for a house. And we would go into realtors, and we would say, we want to buy a house. And they'd say, good, uh, do you have any down payment? No, we don't have any down payment. Do you have a job? No, we don't have any job. <laughs> and, and so we were real popular with, <laughs> with realtors. We went realtor to the realtor, and, and everybody, we had got the same answer from everybody. Forget it, man. You, know, you are not going to buy a house. So we kind of gave up on it, and we started to look for rentals, and we found a rental, and the next day we were going to go and give a down payment, uh, you know, a first month's rent and that stuff on a rental house. And so we went to, in the meantime, we'd started uh, ministry in this ministry. Remember what it was called? Hotline, yeah. It was called the Hotline Ministry at Grace Chapel. And we would, you would sit there and take calls in, and people would call in that are suicidal, that need to talk, and so on. And so there was a, there was a, a, uh, a gathering, a, a, a dinner, yeah, a dinner um, that night before we were going to put the deposit down. And so we went to the dinner, and we sat down, and across from us was this guy, and we started talking to him. And we asked what he did, and he said, I'm a realtor. And um, his name is Palmer Olson. I don't know whether any of you remember Palmer Olson. Okay. Um, and so we said, you know, we shared him this story that we had. And as it turns out, the last place that we had gone to look for a house was his realty. <laughs> and it wasn't him, it was one of, his, one of the people who worked for him that said, you, you've got to be kidding me. Well, we told Palmer the, the, you know, the whole story, and he looked at us and he said, did God tell you you're going to have a, buy a house? And we said, yeah, we believe he has. And he said, come to my office tomorrow, let's look for a house. And we did. And we found a house and we bought a house. Um, as I... Yeah, we, we sold the trailer for, for $5,000, five well, 5500 and so we had $500 for a down payment. <laughs> and we had no job, still no job. But, but what was interesting is that Palmer not only sold us that house, but he came day after day and helped us to, to fix that house up. I mean, he just rolled up his sleeves, and we worked for months to fix that house up. And when that was done then Palmer hired us to go in and help him fix up other houses and that kind of stuff. That is kindness. 
He didn't have to do that, but he did it as an expression of the love of Christ. So the solution to the riots and turmoil in America is the church, meaning you and me, and we're to walk in the Spirit. In the middle of the turmoil, people need to be touched by the compassion and kindness of God's people. And then there's this sign. I I remember in a church that uh, we attended when I was in seminary, love can break the hardest of hearts so that faith can grow. Love can break the hardest of hearts so that faith can grow. God bless you. So it looks like we've got our work cut out for us. So as we sing Onward Christian Soldiers, if, um, if you'd like to stand, I, I marched through the whole thing and practice, so I don't think I'll do that now, but you can if you want. <laughs> Marching as to war, will 
us pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we know that the, you are the answer to all of our problems, Lord. We know that if we follow you, if we use you as, the, as that beacon of hope, and we walk, come closer to you, that the problems that we see, if we can help others to see, learn to see you as well, that these problems will dissipate, Lord, because if the focus is on you, it will be in the right place. So, Lord, we ask that that focus be towards you, that we can all be part of your family, and that we can behave the way that you would want us to, with compassion and kindness. This we ask in your son Jesus' name. Amen. God be with us till we meet again. These counsels guide uphold you with the sheep's and